So I've got a question for you as we get started today. What are you ashamed of? <laughs> what are you ashamed of? Psychologists tell us that all of us have something that we're ashamed of. Now, for you it might be your appearance, or it might be your family. For you it might be the appearance of your family <laughs> that you're ashamed of. You might be ashamed of your finances. Or one of the things that so many people have in common is that they are ashamed of what they eat. Ashamed of what they eat. You ever find yourself in, in that sort of a category? The things I saw one list of a person, they were listing the things that they were ashamed of when it comes to their eating. They said they eat too much pizza, they sneak ice cream, and they eat raw cookie dough. I thought, ashamed? That's a great Saturday <laughs> right there. Yeah. Another thing having to do with food that people are ashamed of are people who love McDonald's food. They say there's a certain shame in that. Why? Because, because it's supposedly all food that's you know, not so good for you. But now do you know that there's actually a way to defeat the shame and the guilt of eating at McDonald's? That's because, I just saw this, that's because in certain test markets, you can get your Big Mac and you can eat it in the restaurant while you're riding on a McDonald's exercise bike. <laughs> this is, I'm not making this up. That's not Photoshop. That's not nothing. That's right. McDonald's, some McDonald's in some places have exercise bikes you can ride on, which I suppose that's a good thing. But personally, it just seems to me like they're trying to peddle more Happy Meals. All right. If you're going to boo, you got that out of your system. You owe me two amens, all right, for, for those boos, all right, as we make our way along. All right, yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. Maybe you want to go try to find one. I don't think there are any in the U.S. just yet, but they're supposed to be coming. All right, what are you ashamed of? There are some things that, that all of us are ashamed of. It might be different for each one of us, but the fact is that that is true. Some of the things are things you probably should be ashamed about. Sometimes there are things that we, we might not be ashamed of, we should be, or we shouldn't be, and we are. How do we make our way through that? Well, we're going to be thinking about this idea of, of being ashamed and what that looks like, because, because the author of this book that we have begun to study brings that into play in what we're going to be taking a look at today. We have just begun a series through the book of Romans, and I hope you're excited about this. I've been hearing a lot of people being excited about this, and I certainly am. You know I am, because Romans is rich. Romans is full. Romans is something that is very theological, yet at the same time, it is immensely practical. It is something that will help all of us in our spiritual growth if we'll devote ourselves to opening up our minds as we open up the text to ask God what it is he'd speak to us. Romans has been at the heart of many revivals and reformations. And the fact is that Romans can reform our own hearts and our own minds. And that's exactly what I am praying for as we get into this series, that our hearts and our lives would be changed. There were already several from last week who indicated a change of their heart and in their mind, just as we got started into it. And I'm just praying that we would go forward in that same spirit and with that same experience. The fact of the matter is, if we get to the end of this series and we think about Romans and we know more about Romans as a book or we know more about the theology that's contained in there but it hasn't done anything to transform our hearts, we will have failed. We will have failed. Because Romans is a book, it's a letter that centers on grace. And as we've been saying in this series, grace changes everything. 
And grace can change and should change and I believe will change our own hearts and that's what we're moving our way toward. To assist you in this, we've given you the scripture journal. I hope that all of you have one of those by now. If you didn't already get one, they're available in the back of the room that you're in. And by the way, welcome to those of you who are in other rooms listening on our Moon Campus or in the classic venue or maybe in your own home. But uh, those are available in the back of whatever room that you might happen to be in as long as it's not your room at home. I don't think we have any in your living rooms, but uh, it's there. Also, if you haven't picked one up because you weren't here last week, they're available for you, and inside there we've actually put notes from last week's sermon so that you can not feel behind at all, and uh, you can just stay up with that. Also, in the back of the rooms, you will find a blank note sheet. In case you forgot yours today, you can take the notes and then tuck it in. But I, I just hope that we will all take advantage of this and use this journal because it, it is something that can create for us our own little commentary and our own thoughts and our own for reflections and the things that we grab. And, and we can go back to that and it'll be a reference tool for us for really all of life. And one of the things you can do is you can take the outline that we always put in the, the pathway notes, and you might want to tear that out and tuck that inside those pages. Or better yet, what I would do is I would just be recopying as we make our way through the sermon the, the outline into your notes. So it's just right there, and you can fill in the blanks, and you can add in a bunch of other things as you're struck by them as we make our way along. One of the things that is always on there is the scripture text for that particular message, and you might want to just put that right at the top of your journal where you're starting into today's notes, and that passage is Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. That's where we're going to be today. Romans 1, 8 through 17. Last week we got started by taking a look at some of our traveling companions, and one of those traveling companions is the author of Romans, and his name is Paul, the Apostle Paul, is our, is our author. He is an absolutely amazing, amazing servant of Jesus Christ. He was a dynamic missionary. He traveled the world. He shared the gospel. He planted churches. And not only that, he's a very prolific author. He writes about half of the New Testament, 13 of the New Testament books we can directly attribute to the Apostle Paul as the author. An amazing guy. Yet as we think about this idea of being ashamed... Paul is not someone who is exempt from that. Paul himself says, I've been ashamed of this and this and this. For instance, one of the things that he says that he is ashamed about is his life and his time as a Pharisee. Pharisee, he was very much standing in opposition to Jesus and in opposition to Christians. He was working against them. He was persecuting Christians. He was overseeing the stoning of Stephen, arresting other Christians, and he very much worked in a pattern that was against what he would come to recognize was what Jesus' will and purpose would be for him. On top of that, he says, I do the very things that I wish I didn't do, and I don't do the very things that I know that I should do. When it comes to this idea of being ashamed, Paul is actually someone with whom we share a few things in common. We think of him way up here, but the fact is that all of us have circumstances where we can feel some shame, which is what makes it very interesting when we come to this text that Paul very emphatically just comes right out and he says that I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Now exactly what he's talking about there is something that we're going to dig into then as we make our way through this text that we have before us today. And as we do so, we're going to see some things 
that are in the pattern of those who are unashamed. And the first of those is this, you can jot down there, is that they live to serve others. The unashamed live to serve others. Right from the outset of Romans, it's clear that Paul lives to serve. In the Greek text, it only takes him two words to get to that notion. It starts, he basically in the Greek says, Paul, servant. Paul, servant. Romans chapter 1, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus. It sounds a little wrong to us grammatically, but that's the way that it would have been, or it is written in the Greek language. And last week we saw that that word servant can also be translated as slave. And Paul has no problems with that. Most of us would be like, don't call me a slave. He's like, yes, that's exactly what I am. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And then we come to today's text. We can see that he's still, this idea of serving the Lord and the Roman saints is right in the front of his mind. So let's go ahead and jump into today's text. It's Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, where it says this. You can see it right there in your journal. Romans 1, 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. When Paul says there that he serves with my spirit, he's saying, I'm serving from the core of my being. This is not, I am serving with my spirit about an hour every other Wednesday. <laughs> that, that's not what he is saying here. He is all in. This isn't something, serving isn't something that Paul does. Serving is something that Paul is. He's just a servant. It defines all of his life. He makes it clear he's committed to serving others, and you can see the investment that he's making in them as it goes on in verse 9. I'm going to pick it up again at the beginning of verse 9. It says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, here we go, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow my, by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can see there that one of the ways that Paul serves others is through prayer. It's through prayer. For many years, Paul has been trying to get to Rome. So, so far, that hasn't happened, but he's not giving up. He says, I'm praying and praying that God would open up a door for opportunity that I might come to you. But in the meantime, he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would be strengthened. I'm praying that you would be unified. I'm praying that you would be faithful. <clears throat> and this is more than lip service. Paul's not just writing like Christians tend to write and tend to talk that when we're just looking to, to fill the air or fill up the page or fill up the card that we're writing, yeah, well, I'm praying for you or I will pray for you. We make a promise that sometimes we don't always fulfill. You ever had that circumstance? You're in a conversation with somebody and they tell you a little something about what's going on in their life and you're like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And then you forget to pray for them. And then you see him the next week in church and they're walking toward in the lobby and you're like, oh man, I forgot to pray for Joe. Dear God, bless Joe. Right? And then you walk up to him, hey Joe, I've been praying for you. Right? You ever done that? I'm not saying I have. I'm just saying I think some people do that. Right? Okay, yeah. That's not Paul. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul has them in his heart. He says he's praying without ceasing. Praying without ceasing. That means that he's embraced them in their circumstances. They're constantly on his mind. Not that he's always on his knees, but they're constantly on his mind. And certainly whenever he gets on his knees, they are first and foremost. They are front and center. And this has been a long time that this burden has been developed in Paul. And so this is the prayer request that's been going on for years for Paul. And it's still front and center for him. 
that he might get there, that he might carry out what he believes and knows that God has in store for him. Do you want to know who or what it is that you care for, I mean really care for in your life? Just ask yourself who you're praying for. Because it'll tell you immediately. I know that I love my kids dearly because I can work them into any prayer at all. It's not hard at all. It's like, dear God, do whatever you can to bless these loaded nachos and please watch over the kids. I mean, that, that's like a normal prayer for me, right? And maybe for you too. Well, you know who it is because that's what rises to the level of I'm going to take this to God because it's that important to me. And that's where the Romans are for, for Paul. I love it when some of you come to me and you say, I've been praying for you. Or I pray for you every week. Or I pray for you every day. I love that. It's very humbling because essentially what that is is like Paul's doing, it's, it's, it's your serving. And that just means so much because it means you care. It means you're paying attention. It means that that's important to you. And Paul's saying it's important to him. For Paul, the Romans he had never met were on his mind and he's able to serve them through prayer. He's never met them. He's never been there but yet he's able to fully engage in prayer, which tells us a little something about what our prayer lives can be like. You don't have to be there. You could be praying for our friends in Orkarkar, in Kenya, the village that we go to and we serve, or other mission places that perhaps you have been and that you have served, or other, other churches that you might be aware of around the country or right in our own community. You can be praying for them. Right now, you can be praying for them. Or you can look across the room that you're sitting in and see somebody over on the other side and think, oh man, it looks like they need prayer. You can be praying for them, lifting them up. There is nothing that should be hindering us in that regard. Distance, even acquaintance. What is it that we need to be praying about? Maybe even right in this moment. Paul lives to serve others and he does it through prayer and also through encouragement we see here. It's incredible that Paul has made such an investment in the people of Rome when he's never been there. He's probably only met a couple of them, and that's when they were traveling somewhere, when he was traveling, and they happened to run into one another. It's like, oh, you're from the church in Rome? That's cool. It's great to meet you. But he doesn't know many of them. But yet it's clear how he feels. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul doesn't specifically say what the spiritual gift is that he's wanting to take and use for their blessing, but I think that we can probably surmise that at least in part it's got to do with preaching and teaching, because those were certainly among his gifts and his desire was to use them to build up this, this young church. It wasn't brand new, but it was very young, and it, and it needed some bolstering and some support. And so he's desiring to pray that they would experience God's blessing and that they would stand strong in the midst of some of the circumstances that were happening outside the church that were influencing them, but also for some things that were going on inside the church. Because there's some very interesting things that are taking place. At the start of the church, the primary leadership would have been in the hands of the Jews. The Jews were the ones who came in first. The Jews are the ones who had the background because of all of the prophets that they had studied and that they knew. This was the background of Christianity. And so they had a head start, and so they tended to be the ones who were in leadership positions, and that would have been the case there in the church in Rome. But then something very, very interesting happens. The Roman emperor at that time was a guy by the name of Claudius. And he got a little bit fed up with the Jews. 
the Jews because they were bickering, they were fighting, and in part over Jesus and some other matters as well. So what he did is Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. All of you. And he wouldn't have known the division between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. It's just, if you're a Jew, go. I'm done with you. And all the Jews were kicked out of Rome. And of course, out of the church. Acts chapter 18 actually tells us about this. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, there's our emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Maybe you've read that verse before. It's like, that went right over my head. I never noticed that until right now. It just kind of seemed like travelogue until we understand how it pieces into our story. 49 AD, all the Jews are kicked out of the church in Rome, and they're gone. And so that would have created a tremendous vacuum there in the church, and they're gone for a period of at least five years. Because in 54 AD, what happens is, five years later is that Claudius dies. And when he dies, the Jews are allowed to start to come back. And they start to come back into the church. But guess what? The church wasn't what it was. Before, it would have been sort of culturally influenced by Jewish culture. Well, they've been gone for five years. And so now it looks very Gentile in nature. And the Jews come back, and it's like, whoa, what happened to the church? This isn't what it used to be like. Carolyn and I, in our former city where we lived, in our very first house, we actually had the opportunity to build. And so we went through all those decisions, deciding, you know, what's this going to be? What's the color going to be? What are the finishes going to be? Every decision, you know what that's, you got to make them all. And so we did, and we thought it looked pretty good. Then we moved here, and a couple of years few years after we were here, we had the opportunity to go back and visit some friends, and we did. And while we're there, we're like, hey, let's drive by the old house. And we did. It's like, what did they do to this place? They had painted it this hideous red that didn't match the brick at all. There were weeds growing up in the yard. The landscaping was all overgrown. It's like, what do you do to my house? Now, I know it wasn't my house, but it just felt like they didn't treat it as well as they probably should have. And that's a lot of what the Jews would have been feeling here when they come back into Rome. And they go back and it's like, whoa, this isn't what we left. It's so different. And it led to some tensions and some issues and some problems. And Paul knew about that. And he's like, let me write to you. Since I can't be there yet, let me write. Let me help you to strengthen you and to seek to bring some unity as you make your way through this. Now, I thought it might be helpful to just plot some of this on a timeline. We've talked about a number of different things in even just the couple of weeks we've been at this, and I thought it might be helpful just to to put a timeline out there, and I'm going to leave this up here for a good bit, so if you want to jot some of this down in your notes, you'll have time to do it, all right? Even if you don't want to draw out the whole timeline, you could at least put in some of the dates that might be useful for you to have there in your notes. We've talked before about Paul's missionary journeys, his gospel journeys, his, his going to plant churches, and there were three of them that we primarily think of. The first of those took place from 46 to 48 AD, the second one 50 to 52, and the third one 54 to 57 AD. Three different journeys. He goes on and comes back home, rests briefly, goes out, does it again, comes back home, goes off on 
another journey. Three times. There are some who suggest there's a fourth. In fact, we'll get into that later on in Rome and about Spain, and and, uh, that's coming. So just hang on to that. But while that's going on, while Paul is doing these missionary journeys, not in Rome because he hasn't been there yet, what's happening in Rome is that the church got its start a little bit before this timeline begins. But then Claudius, 49, expels all of the Jews from Rome. They're gone. The Gentiles have leadership in the church. The Jews come back or start to come back to Rome when Claudius dies in 54 AD. And then Paul writes Romans right here at the end of the third missionary journey. We mentioned this last week that he is there in Corinth right at the end of the journey and he writes this letter and sends it off to them in Rome. So in 54 They wouldn't have immediately, the Jews wouldn't have immediately come back. They would have started some immediately, but some would just kind of be trickling back. And so you can see the timeliness of a letter written in 57, why Paul's like, I've got to write this letter now, so that he might be able to speak into what's going on in the Roman church. And then Paul, after he writes this letter, after this journey, goes back to Jerusalem and eventually makes it to Rome, actually in chains. And uh, we'll talk more about that later on as well. I'll leave that up there for a moment if you want to get down some of those dates. But another important point that comes out in verse 12 is that the encouragement Paul is focused on is a mutual encouragement. Yeah, he knows that he's able to offer them some encouragement, but what he's talking about here is a mutual encouragement because he knows whenever he spends time with other believers that he is going to experience or he's going to receive something for himself. That's just the way that it works. It it doesn't matter how mature you are in your faith. If you're very mature, if you're new in your faith, you have the opportunity to encourage other people. In fact, not just the opportunity, the responsibility to encourage other people. You might be brand new to Pathway. You have the opportunity and, might I say, the responsibility to look for ways that you might be able to encourage other people as well. Before you ever, when you come on a weekend, when you come for a service, before you ever depart you should think, how might I be able to serve somebody else? How, I might, how might I be able to build somebody up? Maybe a, a, a fitting word that is spoken, maybe a, maybe a kind gesture that is done, some way to look beyond yourself. A lot of times people come in and it's like, well, well, I'm here so that I might be filled up, so that people might minister to me, so that I might receive while I'm here. And I hope you do receive while you're here. But if you just say, that's the only reason that there is to go to church, then you're missing the boat altogether. It's a very self-centered sort of point of view and one that we need to learn to overcome. And it certainly ignores the mutual encouragement that Paul says that we can bring to one another. So I'd encourage you to think about that before you ever walk out the doors to think, what's a word I might speak? What's, a, what's an encouragement I might bring? How might I serve somebody else? Because we're the body of Christ that we've been made to serve one another. And if you're all taking and no giving, then you're missing out on this mutual encouragement that Paul is talking about. So Paul lives to serve others. We see him do it unashamedly through prayer, through encouragement. And then Paul goes on to show us another pattern of the unashamed, and it's to long to speak up to long to speak up. We're only a dozen verses into this letter, and already it is abundantly clear that Paul longs to speak up. This is a guy who wants to put it out there. He wants to say what is on his mind and minister to others and serve other people in doing so. We can see even more of that spirit as it continues in verse 13, where he writes, 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Saying, I can't wait to get there to be with you to preach the gospel because he knows that there are some people who are hanging around just kind of exploring in the church and a lot of other Gentiles who are on the outside who all need to come to faith in Jesus. And he's like, if I'm there, I know that I'm going to see a huge harvest that's going to happen. God has always gone before me and he's always brought people into fellowship and that's going to happen. I can't wait to get there to do some of that. He goes on, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, when Paul mentions barbarians there, it probably jumps off the page a little bit for you, and you probably picture a barbarian, and well, that's like this, this hulking, uncivilized figure with, with uh, like Viking horns and a battle axe. That's what we picture, right? Well, that's not what Paul was talking about. That's not what he pictures at all in his own mind. In this context, a barbarian is simply someone who wasn't Greek. Let me break this down. So in the New Testament, you've basically got Jews and Gentiles. We read about those, talk about those all the time. And a Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew. Well, here you have Greeks and barbarians. Another name for barbarians is just simply a way to say non-Greeks. And they were separated because of language. They were separated because of culture. And so Paul just says, yeah, I want to reach all those people. And it's worth dividing them down so everybody understands the breadth of what he is wanting to go and do. Well, all of these Greeks and non-Greeks would all fall under the category of Gentile. All right? So those are the people that we are talking about here. And in essence, it's really nothing more than him saying, I want to reach the Greeks who are there among you who are sort of native and I want to reach the non-Greeks or basically the people who aren't from around there. So for us today, it would kind of be like us saying that the barbarians are like people from West Virginia. Why are you laughing? It's just people who aren't from around here <laughs> is all I'm trying. What did you think I meant? All right. Paul feels a keen calling to preach to everyone regardless of ethnicity or background or intellect or, or citizenship or religion. And he says, I feel this obligation. But when you read obligation here, don't think for even a moment that Paul is saying, oh man, I'm obligated, that this is drudgery, that I got to go do this. No. In verse 15, what he says is just the opposite. He says, I am eager to preach. He longs to speak up. He is unashamed when it comes to the gospel. And he can't wait to say what he has to say. Paul's sense of eager obligation comes from the fact that he knows the enormous blessing that he's received. He's well aware of his sin. He's well aware of the consequence that should have come his way because of his sin. But he knows the way that he's been spared by what? By the grace of God. And grace changes everything. And Paul is aware of that. And Paul is so thankful for that that he can't help himself but desire to go and do what God has invited him to go and do. But this is not a deal that is being made. All right? He's not um, under obligation because, because God made a deal with him and so he now, now he's got to follow through. It wasn't that God said, okay, I'll save you but then you're going to be obligated to me to serve me and to go and travel around and to preach the gospel. That's not what's going on here 
at all. Friends, the gospel is not a deal to be negotiated. It is a gift to be appreciated. The gospel is not a deal to be negotiated. It's a gift to be appreciated. Or we might even say, you might add to that, appropriated as well for our lives. It's a gift that is given. What happened is that Jesus saved Paul, and because of the depth of the gratitude in Paul's heart, Paul couldn't help himself. I've got to go speak. This is so dynamic in my life. I recognize the depth of what this cost Christ. I recognize the blessing that has been mine. I recognize the grace that has been poured out on me so much so that I can't help myself but to go and speak. He longs to speak up. So where does that leave us? Hopefully encouraged. Hopefully challenged. Hopefully ourselves longing to speak up. It's true that Paul was called to preach, yes, but the heart behind that drive was the grace that he had experienced in Jesus. If you're a believer, you've experienced that very same thing, and the depth at which you understand that grace will determine the heights to which you speak it. Might be that your lack of speaking up to others isn't as much a statement about your lack of love for them and more a statement about your actual appreciation of the grace of God. An understanding of what's really been done for you. It could be that we just take it way, 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 way too much for granted. Because if we really understood the nature of it, we wouldn't be able to help ourselves. We'd be broadcasting it everywhere that we go. That's what Paul shows us. And it leads right into the last pattern of the unashamed, and it's to lift high the gospel. Paul just comes out and says in verse 16 what we've kind of been circling around all through this text. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is such a powerful statement, but we'd probably all have to admit that there are plenty of times when we demonstrate we are ashamed of the gospel because we're not willing to speak up. We tend to hide it. We tend to shrink back behind it. It can be for any of a number of reasons. Maybe it's because we're afraid that people are going to ridicule us if they learn who it is that we follow. Maybe it's that we're afraid we, it's going to cost us a friendship that we have or that we could have if they know that that's who we are. Or maybe it's because there's this idea, this notion out there of who Christians are, that they're these hypocritical people, and you just don't want to be lumped in with that category of people. Or maybe it's because you recognize that there are some things, some places that you might not be invited to go, some circles you won't be invited to walk in, maybe some jobs that you won't be able to get if you go on record in such a way. For Paul, however, none of those things are influences on him, and here's why. All of those things become tensions because they all have a straddling the line between status and different kingdoms. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because Paul isn't concerned about having status in multiple kingdoms. Paul's concerned only that he has status in God's. 
the place that he's been called. So the rest of it, what happens, happens. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to speak up in every opportunity that I ever have. He's all in for Jesus and the gospel. Without any reservation, verse 16 goes on because, or for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is Paul's first explicit statement about the offer of salvation. You might want to underline that. First explicit statement about the offer of salvation. And he is sure to say that it comes through the power of God. So important where our salvation comes from. You see, every religion in the world tells you one thing. It tells you that if you want to find favor with God, then what you need to do is obey whatever their group of things you need to obey is. Following these pillars, praying these prayers, fulfilling these rites, taking these steps, doing this service, whatever it might happen to be. And if you do it enough, if you do it well enough, if you do it often enough, then God might just show his favor on you. Every religion in the world, except Christianity, which I wouldn't consider to be a religion actually anyway in its pure sense. You see, the Christian gospel teaches something completely different. The gospel says that you can't do enough to make your way to God. Like all of them are saying you must do. You can't do enough to make your way to God, but that's okay because he made his way to you. That's the good news. That what you couldn't do, you aren't required to do. You're simply required to embrace what God has done for you. That's grace. And what do we know about grace? We know that grace, say it, changes everything. Grace changes everything. Now that's all good news, but there's more here. We're wrapping it up, but there's more we got to say. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. His purity. His holiness. His perfection. And how that is brought to bear on your life and on mine. So that we might have hope. So that we might have the work of the cross applied to our hearts. But understand that this is more than just a promise of forgiveness. See, here Paul says that we've been given God's righteousness, which is more than just being declared not guilty. There's so much more that he is saying that is ours here than you're forgiven. We love to think about the fact that we're forgiven, but this is saying so much more than, tell you what, your slate is wiped clean. It goes beyond that in what he says. The gospel doesn't just spare us from death row. It robes us in the righteousness of God. Look at this verse. 2 Corinthians, this is Paul writing. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, he's saying, all of our sin is placed on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. It's not even, he's not saying that we 
experience the righteousness of God. He's saying we become the righteousness of God. Think about that. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son applied to us because he took our sin to the cross. What's that? That's grace. Changes everything. We become the righteousness of God. If you are a believer in Jesus, God's holiness is upon you. His purity is upon you. What does that require of us? Where does that lead us? Paul says that the righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, which sounds a little bit confusing, but it's emphasizing the centrality of faith as our response to the gospel. Paul gives it this added emphasis because salvation requires nothing beyond faith. It doesn't. So often we try to bring something else to the table. Well, if I, I, I'm going to need to do this work. I'm going to need to do that work. And as long as I, I do enough, what we're doing is we're bringing ourselves into what every other religion in the world tries to do. We're saying, maybe they got it right. Maybe I do have to prove to God that I'm worthy. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. We're stuck in our sin until by faith we receive the work that God has done for us which brings salvation, which brings upon us the righteousness of God. That ought to move you. That ought to inspire you to say, I don't need to keep my feet in both kingdoms any longer. I need to be all in for Jesus. I need to live unashamed. Because, Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will not just come to salvation. The righteous will not just experience salvation and hope that they can merit something going forward on their own. No, the righteous live ongoing by faith, by what the gospel has done for us. If you have yet to put your hope, your faith in Jesus, today is the day. Why wouldn't today be the day your step of faith will replace your sin-stained heart with the perfect righteousness of God. And if you are here today huh, as one who's yet to live out your faith, as one who is unashamed, today's the day. Bow your heads with me. Friends, what we see in this text is so transformational. We've said that Romans is chock full, full to the brim. Theology, yes, we've seen it, but also immensely practical. With this theology of what God has done for us and us becoming the righteousness of God has an implication. It's not for us to sit back and say, oh, look at me, I've got the righteousness of God. No, we demonstrate the fact that the righteousness of God is on us. Not to go and work it out so that we might get it. We've already got it. But rather, as an expression of the depth of our gratitude, like Paul couldn't help but speak up. And we can know the degree to which we 
understand and appreciate the grace of God by simply looking at what we do with it. Maybe you're here and you've never taken that step to put your faith in Jesus to say, yes, I believe you are who you say you are. And I'm going, like Paul, to serve you. If that's you and you'd like to take that step to make it certain, pray something like this, just quietly where you're sitting. Dear God, thank you for your grace that brought Jesus into our world to do for me what I couldn't do for myself, to take my sin out of the way. I confess it before you and I ask you to transform my heart. I'm putting my trust fully and completely in you. Friend, if you prayed that prayer by faith, you have become the righteousness of God. It is on you. And I rejoice with you. If you're here today and you're one who's looking at the the direction of your life and you're like, you know what? There's a lot of evidence of being ashamed. I would just challenge you how much you're trying to keep feet in different kingdoms. Because as soon as we sell out for Jesus, our shame factor melts away. So if that's you, I want to encourage you and challenge you to recognize what it is that you've been saved from, who it is that is working for your benefit. It's not, it's not some other kingdom apart from Christ. Jesus is the one who has done the work out of his grace. Let that fill you up because that grace will change everything. And take the step of boldness to lift high the gospel, to long to speak up and see what God does. Father, thank you for Paul, this amazing example, this deeply theological passage on the righteousness of God and and faith and the power of God and Lord help it to just be understood in terms of what what does that require of us and may we be faithful to live it out I pray in Jesus name amen